Yeah, I can see why I didn't really remember this one. How many of you remember this right now? I mean, I know a lot of you watch these with me, and for everyone who does, like, you're awesome, and I love you, and you're great, but um, for those of you who don't, how many of you remember this? How many of you who do watch this with me didn't remember it before you picked it up? What's weird is this is a script by DC Fontana and John Meredith Lucas. The two of them worked together on this one. And this is what we got out of it. What's really weird is this is a threat episode. There's a threat to overcome. They do. That's the episode. In fact, there's two threats. There's a clear A-plot, B-plot. The A-plot is them on the surface trying to overcome the killbots, or killgrams, because they're kind of, you know, kilogram. And the other one is Scotty trying to fix the ship and make sure the ship doesn't blow up. Okay. We do get to see Lee Merriweather. She plays Losira. And in case you're wondering why I bring up the name, obviously she's been in a bunch of things, but the most likely thing you've seen her in is Batman, the movie. As in, she played Catwoman. Which is funny, because we also already had Julie Newmeyer playing Aline in Friday's Child. You may recognize her as Catwoman over in Batman, the show. So we've had both Catwomen now on this show. So there's a young planet. Uh, it's dense, small, has an atmosphere, and has vegetation, despite having none of the science for that. So in my notes, remember, I, don't, I didn't remember this episode. I just wrote, so it's an artificial planet? At the 21 minute and 20 second mark, we find out it's an artificial planet. It's actually an outpost built by a super advanced alien race, which we've never heard of before and never will since, who are wiped out by the Carabacterium. I'm sorry, that's a joke. I shouldn't say that so dryly. Uh, they had this cool thing right at the beginning where there were rocker plates built into the terrain, which simulated the movement a little bit better than... Um, anything else in the show to date. I just wanted to give praise to that, because it's a cool idea. And I think it's the kind of thing that could be applied much more so, and I know that because they did that on Galaxy Quest to great effect. So they beam down, and... Um, I'm not sure what to really say about it. Like, there's, there's so little to say about this episode. Um, Mabenga is back. The doctor, the Vulcan specialist doctor, he's back. That's cool. And the ship is sent 990 light years that way. We'll, call, we'll, we'll follow the ship for a bit. So first, Spock and Scotty bounce off of each other in ways that almost feel out of character for Spock. You know how in late TNG, Data got kind of reverted back to being early TNG? Like, this is especially true in Insurrections. You remember that? In Star Trek Insurrection, the movie, Data was just season one Data again. Or season two Data. Brent Spiner himself actually commented on that and felt like it was something that he really disliked as, his, as part of his character. It's the same feeling here I get. This feels like a Spock who hasn't been had a working environment and professional interaction with these people for three years now, at least three years that we know about. We also... He dismisses Scotty and insults his helm officer. And then Watkins calls for help. Credit where credit is due. Watkins actually calls for help rather than just dying quietly, which is exactly what I was expecting to happen. Scotty rushes over and it's like... <sighs> and they do kind of a cool effect where they have the projections kind of shrink and then shrink that way. It's, it's a neat effect for the time, but it's a nice way to have something other than the usual beam effect. So, so Scotty looks over it, Spock looks over it, and Spock's like, so by the way, I've decided that your earlier random comment was something that's totally worth looking into, and I'm going to look into it now. And it turns out to be something that helps save the day. Okay. 
Why didn't he do that earlier? Now, hang on, I have an answer for that. Because there was no logical reason to suspect there was a validity to it, other than just trust in Scotty's expertise. Yeah, I know, that's a, that's a pretty piss-poor explanation, but it's as good as I've got. Because what that also means is not being thorough. And I want you to tell me, look me in the eyes and tell me that Spock, at this point in his career, is not thorough. This is going on the skip list, by the way. So, um, they, Scotty goes into the place where it's super dangerous to be, and he seals himself in just in case, and he goes to repair the thing. And Spock finds out how to do it, and there's this big tense moment, but then he does it. And then several seconds passed after the Enterprise was supposed to be destroyed, but they successfully stopped the thing at the last second. Woo. And then Spock makes fun of Scotty, basically. For the hell of it, they, meant, they keep mentioning 990.7 light years away. They also mention how long it'll take them to get back at warp 8. I decided to do a little bit of math just for the fun of it. You ever hear me complain about the speed and geography problem in Star Trek? I don't actually bring it up that often, because if I were, then I would bring it up in almost every episode where it's a factor, where distance, speed, and time are factors. It's actually something I praised about Enterprise, is the fact that they were reasonably consistent about that early on. Keep in mind, I'm recording this now before I've gotten to the Enterprise stuff, so I'm not sure if that's actually true going forwards in Enterprise. It's just, in, early, in Season 1 and early Season 2, that was a true factor. So that's cool. I like that. I like that consistency. It adds to my believability. It adds to my immersion. It adds to my enjoyability. It is a form of background continuity, and I'm with it. So when I see it the opposite, it kind of, it's just, it's not a big deal, really. It's just a little irritant. To be perfectly blunt, I wouldn't even be bringing it up in this episode if not for the fact that I have nothing else to talk about. So, to use a direct comparison, and I used exact values here, although these were, this is really easy math, they mention how long it will take Voyager to get back at Caretaker, right? Then they mention the distance they travel here and the duration that will take. With that, we can determine a relative speed of both ships both Voyager versus Enterprise. Turns out the Enterprise is 765 times faster than Voyager. Ooh, I should do another calculation. Hang on, I didn't even think about that. Give me a second. Because once we figure that, we know it's going to take Voyager 75 years to get back, right? So... That means... Uh, what is that? Times 365. So that means it would take the Enterprise... 35 days to get back from Caretaker. I know, I know. I'm, I'm trying not to take this too seriously. I said I'd give it leeway, and I will. Like I said, the only reason I'm even bringing this up is because i got nothing else to talk about. It's just, it really does amuse me how much they kind of skew the warp speeds back in the day. I mean, it's a major plot point in Star Trek V that they can go to the center of the galaxy very quickly. And they go to the edge of the galaxy three times in TOS. Anyways, <clears throat> let's move on. So then there's the plot stuff on the planet, which I have very, very little to say about. Diamato is killed. That sucks. And I want to give praise to Lee Merriweather's acting as Lucira's bots or the, the projections or whatever you want to call them. And I mean that sincerely. Because even as she's killing, there's this sort of comforting, you know, don't be afraid. It's okay. You are here. I am for you. I, I need to touch you. And that's, it's really simple. And 
anytime it goes past that, anytime anyone offers any resistance at all, she looks conflicted, like she doesn't want to do this. Like she's almost bothered or disgusted by it because it replicates the personality in addition to the intent of the defense bot. That's doubly horrifying, and it's probably one of the most interesting aspects of the whole episode. They don't really do anything with it, but imagine a defensive turret which hates killing and has feelings and emotions. And you've pretty much got the horror here. Because on the one hand, it's going to kill you. It's going to be very polite and nice and kind, and it's going to kill you. That's the first horror. The second horror is that it's going to hate doing it, and it has no choice. I've actually written something like this myself with the artificially crafted lycanthropes over on the Primus planet. The, the lycanthropes have something built into them where they actually are incapable of disobeying any orders from their superiors. The, uh, well, I don't think I've renamed them yet, have I? The group that needs to be renamed. Why is this horrifying? Well, let's say that you're really good friends with a lycanthrope. And this has happened. And, and you like it, you like them, and they like you, and they're, they're great buds, and you hang out, and it's fun, and you've known each other for years. And all of a sudden, their master shows up and says, kill him. That lycanthrope, who I remind you has, you know, sentient, sapient, free will, just can't disobey this order, will then have to go murder their best friend in cold blood and hate doing it. It's, it's messed up, is what I'm trying to say. This whole thing is messed up. It, it makes me just, oh my god, that's horrible. Also, I want to give this episode more praise. Uh, Diamoto dies, but he's not really a redshirt death. If anything, the transporter guy was probably closer to a redshirt death, but even that doesn't qualify, because it's brought up again, just like Watkins' death is brought up again, and Diamoto's death is part of them deducing what's going on, figuring out about the planet and the nature of it, and trying to track down the energy and learning how to defend against it. In short, one of my biggest complaints is and always has been that a redshirt death is something that has no meaning or purpose. It's check off the checklist that someone's dead. Okay, now we've proven the situation serious. But in all three of the deaths in this episode, they have some significance or impact and are referenced and come up later, they even make a freaking grave for Diamoto, for God's sakes. Which is funny, because it's Kirk making a rock grave. I mean, think about that. Either way, good, good on him. Also, I have read somewhere, um, and I don't know if this is true, because I haven't gone through this the episodes, this might actually be the last character death in TOS, these three. I'm not sure. I'll be paying attention as we go. But it's possible these are the final deaths of TOS. Interesting to think about. I'm also not 100% sure if this is the end of Fontana's inclusion here. Uh, her her um, adding to Star Trek, you know, her, her work on TOS, however you want to actually think of that. Because she obviously has done quite a few stuff. Hang on, let me look at my notes here. Oh, nope, I'm wrong. There is one more episode. Okay, so we won't talk about that now. I was going to say, I was pretty sure there's another one. But I wanted to verify really quick, because I didn't have it in my notes, and obviously I'm right. And, um... Yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> Not much to talk about. A very forgettable episode. And definitely going on the skip list by virtue of being very forgettable. I can see why I didn't remember this one. I don't even remember what's next either, but I'm pretty sure it's another not very memorable episode. Hopefully, fingers crossed. I guess I'll find out next week. See you around, guys. Wait. Wait, no, I must... I am for you.